Immigration, a constant aspect of human life since its inception. From the movement of ancient Near Eastern clans to what we might think of in the world of the modern nation state, immigration has impacted countless lives throughout history, for better or for worse. The Bible does not shy away from this reality and is rife with stories and examples of people groups migrating. Whether they've been forced to move or voluntarily decide to leave their home, immigrants are often met with a mixed reception upon their arrival in a new land. How are Christians to respond to this age-old phenomenon? Does the Bible provide any clear endorsements one way or the other? Or is the issue more complex than what American bipartisan politics would lead us to believe? All that and more on this edition of Questions from the Peace. Welcome to Questions from the Pew, the intersection of faith and culture. We're a forum for discussion on the issues that are ruminating in the minds of churchgoers, but that are often not raised from the pulpit. Here, no inquiry is off limits. Too long has the church shied away from grappling with tough questions and nuanced issues. No longer. We're your hosts. I'm Reichert Zalameta. I'm Lucas Manning. Hey, it's great to be back. Yep. Back for another episode. Oh, yeah. Man, we're more than halfway through the season. That's true. Yeah, we're coming in on a close here. I guess just a few more episodes. Crazy. Yeah, that. and we're we're still in uh, lockdown mode. I'm not sure when it'll end at this point. Almost a year now. Honestly, that's wild. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I'll I've saved on my uh, on my commute. So that's I mean, true. It's a couple hundred good. bucks a month. Yeah, exactly. And time, the amount of time I was spending. Definitely sleeping in more now. So that's good. But I'm also staying up later. <laughs> That's fair. Because I know that I can sleep in the next day. <laughs> right, right. So it's just a wash, really. <laughs> nice. Great. Well, yeah, today we are talking about, um, yeah, a pretty pertinent issue, uh, mm. the topic of immigration. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one that's been, uh, I guess, raised recently in American politics, although it's been overshadowed by kind of this crazy 2020 mm-hmm. that we've had um kind of taking a back seat but still uh still a um i guess important issue nonetheless yeah uh, i think it, it's probably important at the onset of the episode to issue a disclaimer mm-hmm. here right so the issue like we said it's it's complex mm-hmm. uh, and we are certainly not experts no. on immigration policy no um nor are we policymakers in any sense of the, the no. word. <laughs> I'm not a lawyer, nor the son of a lawyer, as Amos would say. <laughs> but we are students of the Bible and theology. Mm. Um, and like we said in the intro, the Bible does have a lot to say about how we're to treat uh, what mm. it calls the outsider or it envisions as the outsider. So yeah, yeah, I'm excited for the conversation. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, I guess a good place to start is just um, seeing where in the Bible we see instances of immigration. Um, I think, yeah, I think, uh, I guess growing up, we just, we didn't take a, a look at some of these, I guess, very human situations that we find in the Bible, like immigration. It just wasn't on our radar. It wasn't how we were reading the Bible. Mm-hmm. Not to say that that's a, you know, 
horrible thing per se. Uh, like you but didn't it view is... those stories, those narratives as immigration stories? Right, yeah, we, we wouldn't okay. have. Uh, or at least it would never have been talked about that way. I mean, obviously mm. they're like, for instance, Abraham or, you know, uh, Jacob's family, they're moving around. Um, but like, that was, a, that was just the setting in where like the theological truth is being conveyed, you know what mm. I mean? Um, so it, it was, it was not brought up in any meaningful way. Um, but the Bible doesn't, doesn't shy away from, from these human mm-hmm. experiences of immigration that happen all over the place. Um, a lot, a, there's a lot of instances in the Old Testament, uh, less so in the New Testament, uh, but there's a lot in the Old Testament of, yeah, people moving around, uh, whether being pushed by uh, force or pushed by um, famine or hunger, you know, kind of, uh, kind of external forces or, you know, whether it's, for instance, Abraham, uh, you know, Yahweh told him, told him to go, you know what I mean? So there's, there's voluntary examples as well. Right. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, for New Testament Christians, this shouldn't be a, a, an important topic or an important issue. Right, just, right. It's, it was a different state of life um, mm-hmm. for the, the, you know, the people in the New Testament. At that point, they didn't have their own nation. They were under occupation. Right. Whereas right. for a lot of the, a good chunk of the Old Testament, Israel was its own nation state. Mm-hmm. So it That's was right. an issue that they had to deal with. Right, right. Yeah, like a, a sovereign people actually has to decide what they think about immigration versus if you're just underneath the thumb of another power that you don't really have to decide. <laughs> right. Uh, which is where we find Israel in the New Testament. Um, yeah, so I guess in this first, I guess, segment, you could say, it, it might be helpful to look at some of these examples and really just demonstrate the complexity uh, of what's going on um, yeah, in the biblical narratives. Uh, once again, these, these examples don't necessarily say, they're not prescriptive, so they don't say what we should do or they don't necessarily present uh, the characters as moral or immoral related to immigration, but it's more just um, that these, these aspects are present and raise uh i guess uh yeah they they raise questions from the text that are mm-hmm. that are interesting to delve into um i guess i mean one of the most blatant we can just start with is just uh like abraham i mean that's mm-hmm. kind of the first instance uh right. that one's more voluntary um but we still do see even though it's voluntary we still do see abraham kind of on his back foot um voluntary kind of, in the sense of cuz cuz he was called Right, but, right, right. But it wasn't. Uh, but you're saying like it wasn't forced on him, like it was a famine or like war. That's right. Yeah, yeah. There wasn't an external force that was that was pressuring him, at least according to the biblical narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, but even though, yeah, it was voluntary. Obviously, he's following the call of of God of Yahweh. Um, he's still vulnerable, uh, like in the two uh, narratives where he claims that Sarah is his sister rather than his wife, really just to fear of being uh fear of sarah being taken and him being killed as her husband so it's um yeah it's it's these real human situations where abraham did act you could say immorally by lying um but he was pushed to do so because of his vulnerable position as a i guess a newcomer in a new land right yeah even the call in uh, genesis 12 even god's call to abraham to leave um, and go to where he tells him it's 
it's all kinds of levels of security that God is calling Abraham to forego. Um, mm. So go forth from your country, your relatives, and your father's house. Mm. So it's like, and, and he doesn't even know where he's gonna he's gonna be led mm. at this right. point, right? And so there's financial security that he's leaving. There's like actual physical protection of being in a city uh, mm. that he's uh, that he's leaving, uh, and then. Uh, again, just the 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 fact that he's going to be traveling alone with just the people in his immediate household. Mm. It's like you don't you don't just wander around in a just you and your wife at mm. that point, you know. Right. Um. In in the ancient Near East, you're asking for trouble at that point. Right. Right. Yeah. Totally. Totally. So I mean, even I mean, that's just right in the first book of the Bible. Uh. You know, pretty close to the beginning of the story, we have the story of an immigrant, uh, mm-hmm. that being Abraham. Um, and it continues, it, it keeps going. Um, obviously the, the lineage of Abraham down to Jacob, um, where his whole family immigrates to, to Egypt. Um, and I think one just interesting, interesting thing to note is that, uh, in the beginning, you know, because of the, the Joseph narrative and all, all of that, they're welcomed you know, into, into a new land, kind of with open arms, they're given their own land, um, you know, they're, they're just treated as kind of honored guests in a way. Uh, but then obviously the first, you know, the first few verses of Exodus talk about a new, you know, Pharaoh rising, and as time passes, you know, he doesn't know Jacob, he doesn't know Yahweh, his God, um, and, and there's kind of these growing fears about this immigrant Jewish or Hebrew population. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they might get too strong, they'll overthrow us. Um, so kind of these, you know, at first they're, they're welcomed in, um, but then these growing fears precipitate violence against them, right. which I guess, you know, I guess say what you will, but I do see like parallels within like even America uh, where like we're an immigrant nation, but sometimes we're increasingly hostile towards mm-hmm. immigrants, you know, as time yeah. goes by. It's just, it's an interesting parallel. Yeah, I think key to understanding that narrative, too, is the fact that the Pharaoh had forgotten and that he didn't know who this guy Joseph was. And right. Joseph, this Hebrew, was the reason that Egypt was not overwhelmed by famine to begin mm. with. Right, right. And so this immigrant had saved Egypt, but succeeding generations had forgotten about the positive outcomes mm. that have that had ensued from an immigrant population mm. and now it's turning on the supposed threat of the immigrants mm. overwhelming them. I and I think that's a, that's a pretty common thread. That's a pretty common uh, storyline that you see in a lot of even modern um, issues surrounding immigration, that, that fear and um, that almost short sightedness, I guess maybe mm. of how an immigrant population has actually, um, helped the right. native population right i mean i think part of that and this is a little bit off topic but a part of that is like kind of a scarcity mindset or like a like i guess in modern language like a zero-sum mindset where it's mm-hmm. there's only a set amount of resources here and so the more people who come in the less there is for everyone um which i think the bible is pretty directly opposed to especially through like uh, uh, like the Sabbath, for instance, which is like kind of a call to remember the abundance of of God. You don't work on this day. Uh, I mean, there's there's tons of of other uh, 
examples, even Jesus uh, talking about how there's enough for you. You know, the, the, the sparrow doesn't work, but it's always fed and the flower doesn't mm-hmm. work, but it's always clothed. You know, this, yeah. this idea of there's going to be enough and, and God has provided enough for everyone. Uh, but kind of the scarcity mindset, it, it seems like we have to hoard what we have in order to be safe. And I think, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves, but I think that's where some of those fears stem from. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we can keep going down the, uh, down the kind of biblical chronology. I mean, yeah. in Ruth is another example, uh, the narrative of the narrative of Ruth, um, where, uh, the, the Hebrew family moves to Moab from, uh, from Israel because of a famine, uh, seems to be a recurring thing. Uh, you know, hunger security is a good reason why people immigrate. It just makes sense. Um, I mean, Ruth has a lot to unpack. Um, with... It's like two immigration stories. In <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Because really? she goes there. Obviously, all the men die off, which is sad. Naomi uh, goes, yeah. 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 And then, uh, yeah, Naomi's going to return to her homeland, obviously, which makes pretty perfect sense if there's nothing keeping you there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, kind of the affection and love of this personal relationship or duty you know it's arguably why or it's arguable why ruth did it but she decides to you know join naomi back in israel which uh she would have been in her own homeland at that point Uh, she would have married an immigrant and now she's returning without her husband Mm -hmm. to like his land you know what i mean with her with her mother-in-law so yeah i mean there's talk about outsider yeah there's a lot going on (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's fascinating in that narrative, like, um, for most of the narrative, she's called Ruth the Moabites, mm-hmm. uh, she's from Moab, so it's like, it's, it's highlighting the fact that she is an outsider within Israel, right, but then in, as you get to the close of chapter four, the last chapter of that, of that story, of that book, mm-hmm. um, once she is, um, once the whole thing with, with, with Boaz, her, her soon-to-be husband, and mm-hmm. the, the relative, you know, abdicating his responsibility as kinsman redeemer, that sort of thing. Um, once all of that happens, she's no longer called Ruth the Moabites, and she's just mm-hmm. called Ruth. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I, I know it happens in like verse 13 of chapter 4 is when, uh, mm-hmm. I think, when the first time she's actually called just Ruth. Just Ruth, yeah. Um, and at that point, it's it's because there was that communal understanding and communal acceptance of her into that community. Right. So I think that's key in stories like this, the fact that it takes a community of acceptance to welcome the outsider. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Oh, yeah, I mean, one thing, we had talked about this a little earlier, but is like even when I hear that, uh, I guess like my modern sensibilities or whatever are ringing about like assimilation and that kind of thing. You know what I mean? Which I don't even know if we, we came to a conclusion on it or maybe you can remind me if we did, but it is like, I guess like, especially with the, with Ruth being written from a, you know, from the Israelite perspective, um, you know, being welcomed into that community is kind of the, I guess like the ultimate, you know, good thing that can happen to Ruth in her situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's like, even like that kind of a simu- like even just the idea of assimilation is like kind of in there somewhere, you know, and it might not be ca- kind of our modern concept of, of that, but it's still, that's still kind of an aspect that's at play somewhere in there. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting to, I mean, it's interesting to note, like, in terms of assimilation, it, it's not like, I mean, for, for ancient Israel, you weren't assimilating into a, a, a specific way of talking or a spe specific way of looking or dressing per se, yeah. but it was a, an assimilation into a faith, an ideology, uh, a worship of Yahweh. That's fair. Uh, and yeah. that was the key thing, right? So the, the key statement that Ruth makes, like, your people will be my people, your God, my God. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's one of the key things. It's like, it it's kind of like that idea of like mosaic, like where you inherit, where you still hold on to the essence of who you are, but, you know, what you do, what, what does change about you are key uh, things, but it's not changing of the whole person per se, right, I guess. Right. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Plus, she's still remembered as as a Moabite right? Right, and and the the difference between like an ancient Israelite and an ancient Moabite might be far less than maybe what we would think when we think of cultural differences. <laughs> Although I'm sure, like in the in the example of like Joseph and, and Jacob's family coming in, I'm sure there were plenty of cultural differences between the two. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess the point is it's it's not prescriptive prescriptive in any way but these things are at play in the stories you know what i'm mm -hmm. saying uh, and there is uh, yeah there's something to say there There are the Israelites coming back from exile. I think that's a pretty key, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, or description of, of this idea. Mm. Yeah, I mean, one way I see that, like reflected in like modern society, is this idea of when a a certain portion of a people group leaves and goes and lives somewhere else. There's kind of that tension between those who stay and those who have gone. Of you know, kind of who, for instance, with the exile when the Israelites return back from. Uh, from Babylon you know it's kind of like who are the real Israelites you know because mm -hmm. inevitably inevitably when you go live in another land with a different culture like the, you're going to change over time like that's right. that's the nature of culture is it molds and shapes you um so that and it's a just... survival mechanism too for immigrants mm -hmm. that's something to keep in mind so like so for for Israelites in exile as much mm -hmm. as they you know as as important as it was to keep their identity but there was also a, a part of them that wanted to survive in that context right right i mean in order to do that they had to give up a little bit of their identity or at mm -hmm. least take on the the identity or the the context that they were living in mm -hmm. um, and so i think i mean you see that even today in immigrant communities like i know mm -hmm. speaking for myself in 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 the asian or the filipino community that i'm specifically a part of there is this almost hierarchy of oh well that those group uh, th that group of filipinos they're a little bit more americanized mm. than us filipinos who hold on more dearly to our filipino roots or heritage mm. yeah um and it's that's that's def i mean it's definitely not good it's not good for the <laughs> for the minority community right right yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's the tension. And yeah, I, th I think the crazy thing of what you're saying about like uh, it being a survival tactic 
is like clearly even in like the biblical narrative, there's Israelites who stay back in Babylon because mm-hmm. they've done well there, you know, and, and, you know, quote unquote assimilating or like living in Babylon, uh, isn't a, it's not a burden for them anymore. It's like an advantage, you know? So it's, yeah, uh, yeah there's a lot, there's just a lot going on. <laughs> um, yeah. And a lot of parallels, I think mm-hmm. with, with what we see, what we're seeing today. And that's kind of why we brought them up, uh, not to say that these stories are prescriptive of how we should uh, act on this issue, mm-hmm. uh, but more so just the idea that uh, these are not foreign topics to the Bible um, and that, that all the complexity is there in those various narratives. But then there are instances where the Bible is pretty clear uh, in affirming um different aspects of of our conversation um, Mm. right now right so like there are biblical laws concerning how you treat foreigners or sojourners or outsiders Mm. Um, and they're they're pretty spread out uh, but particularly um, you know as God is forming this new nation he makes it very clear that they are supposed to treat sojourners well because they were once sojourners yeah. And that's a key piece of the command for them. It's it's not because I I hold them more highly than you, even though you know God there there does seem to be a special place in God's heart for these outsiders. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that you once were outsiders that I'm telling you to treat them well. Mm. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, and if you're looking for references on that, uh, it talk the law specifically talks about care for the foreigner and immigrant in Exodus twenty three nine. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 20, and Leviticus 19.10. Uh, so feel free to go. Go look for yourself. Don't trust us. <laughs> um, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's other examples too. I mean, the, the examples from the law are very blatant. Uh, the, the law is meant to, I guess, produce wisdom in, in those who read it. And so that, I guess, that care for those vulnerable people people the immigrants and the and the foreigners uh, is part of that wisdom so i think that's pretty i guess pretty clear a pretty clear affirmation of of how we should uh as people of god be reacting to immigrants uh but there's also um i guess less direct affirmations of of immigrants and foreigners uh for instance uh in like the story of of david and bathsheba bathsheba's husband is uriah the hittite and he acts like uh, just with perfect morality throughout that narrative um, and with impeccable honor. Um, mm-hmm. And with him being a Hittite, obviously he's, he's not an Israelite. Um, which is, so his kind of moral upright behavior is contrasted by the moral failing of the Israelite King David. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, that, like that's an example of, uh, it's not a direct um, command or... or right. But it's definitely uh, an an illusion, like a like a juxtaposition, right? Between the two, yeah, definitely. And 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 I think the way it's yeah, the way it's written, and the way the story is told, and even the way Nathan, the prophet Nathan, confronts David at the end, you're very clearly supposed to be on the side of Uriah the Hittite and see Mm. him Mm. as um, the moral exemplar in the narrative. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that's it. Happens. uh, Kind of again in in the story of Jonah and the narrative of Jonah, where we see essentially Israel's stubbornness um, uh, in unrepentance is highlighted through the the narrative um, by Nineveh's, you know, I guess quickness to repent. Um, kind of, it's like, hey, even even 
even Ninevites can get on the right track of repentance here. Uh, so, you know, what are, you know, what is Israel doing or Jonah as a kind of a stand in for Israel in that book? You know, what, what is Jonah doing? What is Israel doing? So the, once again, not a, not a tacit, you know, command to treat foreigners and immigrants a certain way, but definitely a presentation of them in a light that is uh, sometimes even putting to shame kind of quote unquote, God's people, God's chosen people. So, right. Uh, yeah, I think those are kind of just important, important things to think or to keep in mind as well. Yeah, definitely. I think that that last chapter in Jonah chapter four, when he talks about why he didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place Mm. uh, is very telling. The reason why is because God's character, like he knew how merciful and how loving and how forgiving God is. And Mm. he didn't want that for uh, the Ninevites. That's mm. that's usually the common way that it's interpreted. I think it's the right. the best way that we can interpret it, given right. the characterization of Jonah throughout those four chapters. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that I think that says something too of, I guess how how we think of in modern times, just how we think of not even necessarily immigrants, but just foreigners and other you know other nations, other groups of people. I guess we're we're always tempted you know to to view ourselves as the protagonist uh mm-hmm. but you know somebody else's story you might be the antagonist <laughs> not not to say that you know we're all terrible people but just to say that it's good to to have some perspective and the bible i think uh encourages you know viewing quote unquote the enemy as you know as human beings as mm-hmm. you know uh in the case of Uriah the Hittite, uh, uh, people of people capable of impeccable honor and and nobility. Right. Um, I've been reading Lord of the Rings, so apparently honor and I guess we've done just a quick survey of kind of the references that we find to immigration in the Bible, as well as kind of the affirmations uh, that we see. Uh, so we've kind of done a quick survey of the biblical data. Um, so might as well move on here to, I guess, some more modern examples of this. Um, and I guess maybe draw some, some common threads through both the biblical data and you know what we're seeing today. Um, one interesting place to start is just with U.S. immigration policy. Uh, I mean, that's a kind of a phrase you hear thrown around a lot recently is immigration reform, um, which can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, depending on who's saying it. But um, one interesting thing to think about is how uh, or who, who oversees immigration has changed throughout the years in America. Um, so like pre-1940, for instance, uh, immigration was... Uh, was a branch of the Department of Labor. They were the ones who, who handled that. Uh, but then in 1940, it switched to the Department of Justice, um, who, who was overseeing that. Up until the 9-11 attacks, 
Uh, and then after that, in 2003, the Department of Homeland Security, which was just created. I didn't realize they were just created after 9-11, but that department was just created after 9-11. Uh, and then immigration was then uh, placed in, in that department. Uh, and so to me, it just it kind of shows a shift of attitude, a slow shift of attitude of how immigrants are viewed um, in the United States. Obviously, in like the 1920s and 10s and 20s, there's tons of immigration from Europe. Um, I remember as like a, as a, I think like a second grader, we had Ellis Island Day at my school. Mm. And so you would pick like whatever your heritage was, you would like pick a, like a made up name from that place. I was, I think I was like, uh, well, the annoying thing is I'm really Polish, but I went with my Irish side for whatever reason. Uh, so I was like Lucas O'Malley or something like that. <laughs> and, uh, or O'Manning or something like that. Um, anyway, so, so obviously there's this, we're teaching our kids that there's this history of immigration that's like a good thing. And, and obviously back then it was viewed as, you know, we're building, you know, we're building this country. Right. Uh, but then as we see kind of the attitude towards immigration change, you know, it shifts hands of, of who is seeing it until now, you know, it's, it's purely the department of Homeland security. Mm -hmm. So when you think of an immigrant, you think of them less as a, uh, you know, maybe an economic, um, unit to be added to the economy or, you know, uh, a potential, uh, contributor in the workforce. Uh, now it's what is Homeland security there for? It's to defend against threats. Um, so that's, uh, I guess just, a Maybe a troubling thing that I see, you know, uh, but but definitely yeah. fits the the pattern we've been seeing. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely that that transition from the Department of Labor to the Department of Justice to Homeland Security. I mean, that definitely f- flows with the timeline of American, like the the American expansionism, imperialism, mm. and then the modern idea of America as the strongest nation mm. uh, in the world. Yeah. sort of thing right so um like the like pre-1940 when it was under the department of labor that's mm-hmm. when we were still trying to get to to the west coast trying to yeah. connect the country through the intercontinental the trans what is it were the continental railroad yeah. i can't remember is it the transcontinental, transcontinental or the inter- across the continent or yeah inter- no yeah it would be transcontinental right so that yeah. that railroad yeah. um right and it was largely built by chinese migrants mm. Um, and so, um, and it, I don't know if it's enough to, yeah, I don't know if it's, uh, it's right to say that the U S viewed immigrants more favorably back then, but I mm. think it viewed them more so as a resource to be expended, mm. uh, rather, um, than now, I think at least the caricature of the, of, of the immigrant is that it's a poss- that he or she is a possible threat right to right. american jobs to american um uh the american way of life right right yeah no i think that's good that you bring up i guess yeah the changing attitude but not to say that the attitude was ever great in the first place cuz mm-hmm. i mean even going back to my example of that immigration day or whatever that i had in second grade is it's a very specific immigration day. It's it's immigration of European immigrants. <laughs> right. Whereas there's there's tons of uh, you know other groups who are coming to the United States mm-hmm. under far different circumstances. And that's not um, to say that European immigrants had it good either. No, for sure. Right. Well, I guess the Irish, which 
I want to get into it. But yeah, I guess, you know, obviously the Irish and Italians and other people mm-hmm. were, you know, persecuted and that kind of thing. Not so much anymore, but... Um, yeah, but the, the transition of being a, a person under persecution to a person of power, mm. and then, you know, those people who were persecuted once but are now in a position of power turn mm. around and are persecuting other right. immigrants. Well, so that's it's like that vicious cycle. Mm. Well, like it relates to, I mean, God's command towards immigrants and foreigners. And mm-hmm. I mean, he says, listen, like you're going to come and you're going to be in power. The natural like the natural behavior that you're going to want to do is treat these vulnerable people poorly <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, because you can and because you can gain off of them. Please don't do that. And remember when you were, you were in the same spot. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's what I think the Bible is doing is it's, and we've talked about this a little bit, but it's almost teaching us how to not be natural human beings because, <laughs> you know, there's these cycles that we see throughout history that just keep repeating themselves. Um, and I think, yeah, the scriptures and, and Christ calls us to essentially break the cycle and, yeah, I don't know, live to a higher calling, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's the, the Bible, what the Bible and specifically Jesus Christ represent is is a new way to be human, mm. right? Mm. As I don't know what Bible scholar says it. Was it N.T. right? I think maybe. I, I can't remember, but <laughs> some Bible scholar or theologian said, like, what the Bible presents is very much a new way to be human mm, through this yeah. transformative action of, of Christ working in you. Right. I see. Just too good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there's other examples of, uh, I guess, immigration tension, we might say. Um, a, lot of, a lot of people cite, uh, uh, I guess, worries or um, fears of, of immigrants in, like, the Brexit vote. Um, or we like talked seen... a little bit about that in the last, um, in our nationalism episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, kind of that. I guess who, you know, trying to keep Britain British or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever that means. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's an example. Obviously, uh, last election, it was much more of a issue than this election with, obviously, the pandemic and racial unrest and, and other issues popping up in this 2020. The 2020, man, 2020 has rocked us all. But uh, but definitely last election it was it was big obviously the you know Trump's wall and and all that. Um, not to say here's the thing and I mean there's nothing wrong with the structure of nation states. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. citizenship and, and maybe there is and I haven't. I maybe I'm not educated enough. But uh, as far as I see it, like there's nothing wrong with that. Um, in that structure, you can't just go letting everybody go everywhere they want. You know. Um, but at the same time, it seems like it's, it's, it's less about like that wall, for instance, like Trump's wall, build the wall is less about, um, you know, I guess, a, a setting up a system that's good for everyone. It seems like the ethos of it is let's keep our stuff safe. It's like a gated mm-hmm. community. Uh, let's yeah. keep our stuff safe. So let's build a physical barrier to yeah. it. Um, so yeah, I don't, maybe that's well, off, but that's what it seems like to me. Well, we've seen that in, even in American history, um, yeah. it wasn't a physical barrier, but like it was in legislation, it was enacted mm-hmm. in the legislation. So the, the Chinese exclusion act of 1882, mm-hmm. literally there was a, there was a growing fear of these, chi- again, this is pre nine 1940s. So this was, uh, as you were saying earlier, still under the, jur- I guess, jurisdiction of the department mm-hmm. of labor. Yeah. And the fear was that these Chinese immigrants 
were coming in waves and they were taking away American jobs mm -hmm. because employers could hire them for much cheap, uh, much mm -hmm. more uh, cheap of a rate. Mm -hmm. uh, and there were a lot of them coming in so they could stand to hire a lot more at a lower Mm. Um, at a lower pay rate. Yeah. And so th this fear of of uh, losing jobs uh, and, and also, um, you know, American identity um, basically led to the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was, from what I've read, was really just a um, a way to try to, appe uh, try to appease the, the fear, the growing fears. Mm. So it basically suspended Chinese immigration for 10 years and declared Chinese immigrants ineligible for naturalization, so they couldn't become wow. American citizens. citizens. Yeah. So for 10 years, that was the case. And mm -hmm. then at the end of the 10 years, the Geary Act of 1892 reinforced that same thing and extended that act for another 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then it also required Chinese residents to carry like special documentation um, basically certificates of, of residency from the IRS. Mm. Um, and it's, it's crazy to think, but that, that's, that's within um, the very, very near past of American mm. history. Yeah. And that was on the books. Mm. But that, that grew out of a fear of, again, that, um, that scarcity mindset of these outsiders are taking what is rightfully mine mm. uh, and there's only a limited number of uh, limited amount of resources and i can't share with people who are like me mm. looking for a better life yeah yeah i mean it's wild i mean i think a, a good point that you made is that it is in the relatively near past but sometimes i feel like um, multiple factors contribute it contribute to it but our culture's uh i guess obsession with like what's coming up next and what's new and what's mm -hmm. younger and what's you know all these i guess like the obsession of what is new among other things makes us forget you know forget how close in relatively in history these things are to us right and how slow and, and long sometimes especially like uh, societal change can be you know what i mean mm -hmm. like we're only a few generations removed from that <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but yeah i think that's that's a good point um one thing that is worth mentioning is just uh, when it comes to this immigration conversation there's uh uh i think a, a relatively large swath of people that would say you know there's not we have nothing against immigrations or immigrants but we just want them to abide by the law and to and to come to this country lawfully um you know and, and not uh, undocumented or that kind of thing mm -hmm. um and i think that that is that is fair to a certain extent um part of i mean part of the conversation about uh, immigration reform is because of how hard it is to get into like get into the states as a legal immigrant for instance uh right now i i married my wife in in uh, may it is now uh yeah october it's october now um and we're so we're in the green card process and basically she has to give up her visa which allows her to work for potentially nine to ten months hopefully it's only five or six but potentially nine to ten um so which just 
no income for her. And this is, this is, she's marrying a U.S. citizen. So it's like she has 10, 10 legs up against people trying to come here, you know, who, who might not necessarily have someone here to sponsor them. Right. Um, and so she has to stop working. Luckily, you know, we're in a position where I can support us both on my, you know, on my income. But the fact is like a lot of people, they're just not in that situation. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And, and there, yeah. there is no way that they can, that they can get in here unless they have, uh, you know, tons of money or, right. you know, a real stable situation. Right. And the thing is, usually those people with stable situations need the, need the immigration less than those people who would, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. who would actually, if, if we're going to use the word need, they would need that a lot, a yeah. lot more. The whole impetus for moving to a new, new country and picking up a, you know, a different way of life was because your old way of life was just not working for right. you. Right, right, exactly. And so for, for those of for those people who say do it the right way, I think mm. again, this isn't this isn't a comment on what specific policies need to change, but the right mm. way, quote, the quote unquote right way needs to be made more accessible. Right. Then, yeah. right? Because like for me, for example, my family, we did it the quote unquote right way. Mm. I came to America when I was in preschool. I didn't become a naturalized U.S. citizen until I was a junior in high school. Mm. And that was the right way. And that was with my parents both working their tails off Mm. to provide for us and also, um, you know, financial support from family and and, and richer relatives back home Mm. in the Philippines. Yeah. But for people who don't have those kinds of connections and that kind of time, Mm. man, the situation a lot of times is, is hopeless. And so that's why you get these these um these waves of undocumented immigrants and 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 yeah is is that an issue fine yes it is of course it is but saying it saying do the right way do it the right way is not helping the situation right because the right way that is set up right now clearly is not working for the benefit of all who want to come here rightfully and for the right reasons yeah it's just not even an option for some like they're just literally unable to do so Yeah, I mean, that's where we live in an interesting time where uh, the government, it isn't static or not static, but is, uh, I guess it's up to us to change the government. Mm -hmm. So like, for instance, in both contexts of, or at least in the context of the New Testament, you know, they're, they're under the thumb of the Roman, you know, the Roman power. So they they have zero ability to change. I don't even know if they would have called it policy back then, but just the way things are done, they have no say. Um, And even still, you know, Jesus, Paul, you know, they challenged the powers of their day. Paul's being thrown in prison. So I think, I think this, uh, this idea that obeying the law is, is number one on the, you know, on the to-do list as a Christian, I think it's important. Uh, We need, we need laws and countries to maintain any semblance of society and order. But it's not to say that those things shouldn't be challenged, uh, especially when they're working against the the welfare of actual people. Right. So yeah, I think. And once again, we're I'm no immigration policy expert by any stretch, um, but I think where we can uh, do better is maybe in our attitudes, uh, even as Christians, towards mm-hmm. uh, you know towards immigration and immigrate immigrants, immigration and immigration policy. Yeah, definitely. Well, as we we draw our conversation here to a close, then what would you say are, I guess, a few common threads maybe that you'd point out from this conversation? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've seen, I mean, we've talked about these things a little bit kind of throughout the conversation, but both in kind of our survey of the biblical data as well as, um, you know, the, the modern examples we've just talked about. Immigrants are often the most, you know, vulnerable people in a society. You know, they have the least connections. They've been there for the shortest amount of time. Uh, they have small safety nets, if any, um, in a new land, you know, if, if things go wrong. Um, so that's, that's just a fact. That's, you know, the Bible speaks to it, but it's, you know, it's a sociological fact, maybe even more than anything. Um, another, I guess, thread that we see both in biblical data and, and in modern times is uh, that immigrants are met with a mixed reception, so they can often be thought of as threats. Um, threats to not just the safety, though that can be, can be something that, that is in the minds of the inhabitants. Uh, but it also, you know, kind of resource consumption. That's kind of the more what you hear. Although you do, uh, even from from the higher offices of this government, you do hear about threats to safety. Um, mm-hmm. Safety and resource consumption are two things that are continually associated with immigrants when they come. Uh, and I, I mean, unfairly so. At least mm-hmm. if if data is to be trusted, they say uh, like undocumented immigrants and and uh, legal documented immigrants uh are among the lowest rates of of crime or violent crime that kind of thing um yeah why would you want to jeopardize your new life by (laughs) throwing it away on crime right yeah exactly uh yeah on a lot of levels uh the lot the the fears um that some people have are are irrational Mm. Um, if you just take a minute to stop and and think Mm. about the impetus to moving to a new land and um, and creating a new life Yeah, yeah, and so I think yeah. I mean, we we hinted at it earlier, but I think the the affirmations of the Bible um, encourage us to not view not view these these immigrants, these foreigners, uh, as threats, but as you know, as people, um, as as human beings, um, and even as assets from a from a mindset of uh, I guess abundance. If there's enough to go around. Um, then only richness can be uh, can be only a richness in diversity and uh, yeah just a diversity of experience can be the outcome of of having immigrants join a community yeah well I think that's a good place to end thank you for listening um, I think it, it's a, been a uh, I mean I've had a good time thinking and talking through these issues um, that's one that's um, yeah important for us to to think through yeah if you'd like to support us financially uh you can always visit our patreon page it's just www.patreon.com slash questions from the pew we always appreciate any support um financial support that you can give uh if you can't support us financially you can always give us a rating on itunes or whatever platform you're listening on Uh, that really just helps others find our podcast and we'd we'd appreciate it Also, please comment and ask questions. Leave us a short voice message or a text message at 312-725-2995. This has been Questions from the Pew, a podcast in the World Outspoken Network. To learn more about World Outspoken and its mission to prepare the Mestizo Church for cultural change, visit www.worldoutspoken.com. For Questions from the Pew, 
I'm Reichard Zalameta. I'm Lucas Manning. I'll see you next time. Bye.